0: You know, many people today who grow up in urban areas, business as usual, such a dominant framework that they they don't even have access to something wild, and that's the exact thing that that we're paving over, right? Literally, you know. So one thing I say about you know, if you can't get out to someplace wild, at least start wandering the wilderness of your dreams. Like start a relationship there, because that is a sense of wildness that can come through and wake you up as well.
1: That's Matt Cochran, dream worker, wilderness guide and modern homesteader here in the small town in the high mountain desert where I live. He was my guest on episode 22 of the Dreamer's Den series, when we talked about dream work among men and how Matt acts as the raven, drawing the pack of wolves to the spirit food found in dreams. I invited him back on turning season podcast to highlight how dream work is a part of his role in the great turning. He's helping people connect to the wilderness and the wildness within themselves to deep wisdom and the mythic threads of their own lives. He's also here to talk about how his own dreams have guided him to the way he lives in connection with the land as someone who has built his home and grows his own food and as a wilderness guide who loves to explore and always become closer to what he calls wild nature. You'll hear us talk about his role in the community within the structures of society, protecting land and specifically water through legal channels, although in this story it's not the legal channels it's what's unseen and what moves the heart that ended up being the way to win and you'll hear about his roles not within the conventional structures of society hosting groups for men who are reconnecting with each other with themselves and with what matt calls the initiated masculine all through dream work You'll find links in the show notes to connect with Matt and learn more about what he offers for individual dream tracking and wolf pack dreaming in men's groups. Matt mentions a couple of books toward the end of our conversation, one that changed my life around the time I was 20, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, and The World Without Us by Alan Wiseman. You can find links to both of those books in the show notes, at turningseason.com/episode3, and those are affiliate links with bookshop.org, an online bookstore for those of you in the U.S. that financially supports local independent bookstores. So you can order those books or any other books through the Turning Season Bookshop, and a portion of your purchase will also support Turning Season podcast. And because I partner with Tree Sisters. Will also support tree sisters so check out the books matt recommends and find any other books you're shopping for at bookshop.org slash shop slash turning season i'll put a link to that in the show notes too i'm curating lists of books about personal healing and growth ecological and social sustainability and practical skills in the great turning too so if you have book recommendations, I really want to hear your favorite books for healing, for sustainability, for how-to skills. Leave a comment at turningseason.com slash episode 3 or send them to me by email or DM me on Instagram. Okay, let's get to this conversation with Matt Cochran. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navarre here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and change makers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, new innovations to bridging social divides, there are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. My guest is Matt Cochran, dream worker, wilderness guide, and modern homesteader. Raised in California, he spent his adult life here in the Inner West, first as a wandering poet, then as an exploration geologist in Nevada, a surveyor, mapper in Colorado and Montana, and a wilderness guide in the Southwest. He has had a continued relationship with the wild landscapes of the Inner West. With his partner, he's created a world built by hand, and they spend much of their time running their modern homestead. In midlife, Matt earned an MA at Pacifica Graduate School in depth psychology, focusing on dreams and eco-psychology. In hindsight, he sees that he took his mapping skills to the inner territories and recognizes that the language of wild nature corresponds to the language of dreams. He's trained in rites of passage with Animus Valley Institute and been involved in men's work through Michael Mead and the Rising Man movement. Matt is now blending all these worlds into the offering of Raven Dream Tracking, where he focuses on dynamic dream work and works with men in what he calls Wolfpack Dreaming. And I'll quote Matt here, dreams to me are an incredible navigation tool and a fierce viable presence. They give us life from the hidden places within and a generative, creative, and visionary capacity in the world without. I'm so excited to talk with you, Matt. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks,
0: Leilani. Good to see you. And uh, I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast and the turning season. I think it's vitally important. And I can't wait to hear all the different uh, conversations that people bring to this down the road. So glad to be here.
1: Me too. I'm so excited about all of these conversations and... Really, the intention is for listeners to get this dose of active hope and sense of possibility and see what's already being done. And that is definitely for me as well. I want I want all yeah. of it too. So so in the work that reconnects, which is Joanna Macy's work, and she's the the root teacher of that and the one who gave us this language of the three stories of our time and the name for the great turning. So in that work, there's a spiral that we can walk together again and again, beginning always with gratitude and then honoring our pain for the world, and then seeing with new or ancient eyes, reconnecting with past and future generations, and going forth. So I'd love to start our conversation with those first two places on the spiral, the gratitude and honoring our pain for the world. And then we'll move into hearing about what you're doing in the world, which will let us get a glimpse of things through your eyes and a sense of how how you are going forth.
0: Great. Sounds great.
1: All right. So I'm going to ask you about gratitude first. If you want to finish this sentence, however you feel inspired to, some things I love about being alive on earth are? Mm.
0: Walking in the wilderness, dreaming every night, water, stone, ravens, Uh, people's energy to uh, become more of who they are and to bring life forward even in hard times. I'll I'll stop there for a moment.
1: Mm. (laughs) Thank you for those. And in honoring our pain for the world, how would you finish this sentence? when I see what's happening to the natural world, what breaks my heart is?
0: The fact that the natural world seems to, regardless of humans, uh, ignorant and sometimes um, non-ignorant destruction of the world, uh, the earth and its beings seem to want to rest us back in to relationship with them they like love us unconditionally it seems like uh, that's my experience the continued uh, uh wanting to contact human beings to be in relationship with them
1: mm. yeah mm-hmm.
0: that breaks my heart
1: wow thank you for me hearing that that's also heart opening <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And one more, when I see what's happening to our society, what breaks my heart is.
0: That people seem to continually choose a road that takes them away from nature and their natural state of being, Mm -hmm. Um, that somehow technology without wise and slow use will somehow save us.
1: Uh
0: There's probably more to that story, but I'll leave it at that for a moment.
1: So hearing you say what you love about being here and what breaks your heart, it feels already to me so connected to the work you're doing in the world. Do you feel like you've been Guided towards your work through just what you named here in your love and heartbreak.
0: Oh, in so many ways, Leilani. It's in a way, it's the longest story of my life. And I think you know to sort of frame how we move into this conversation is even before uh, you know the the beauty and structure of Joanna Macy's work came out. Uh, I feel like the earth was always nudging me and its beings into what I am now. And from uh, my love as a kid, which was, I grew up in Silicon Valley, but pre-Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s, just right when it was burgeoning. And so the old magic of the land was still in existence in many ways in the Bay Area. I slept on the branches of oak trees and climbed redwood trees. Uh, We weren't inside on devices. When we were bored, uh, my mom said, go outside, you know. And so we are constantly playing with nature as and me and my two brothers as kids. And I know that that makes me who I am today.
1: Wow. And being right where Silicon Valley then grew up and became what it's become. It's like a, what you said, that some of that heartbreak about technology is very vivid at the land right. that you were connected to.
0: Yeah, and even the the Packard family of Hewlett-Packard owned um, acres and acres and acres of of, uh, orchards back then. We used to go pick fruit on their orchards. Wow. Uh, But but then a lot of that land became uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a very personal, it's interesting, a very personal um, relationship to that when I sort of quest back and be like, oh my gosh, this path is so... It's like a dream. Uh, Almost everything makes sense when we start casting back and looking at our story from where we came to where we are today.
1: It is so like a dream. I mean, just that image that there was fruit to pick and eat. There was fruit coming off the tree to nourish ourselves with. And now, I mean, I don't know what's in that exact location, but I'm guessing there's plenty of concrete and you know, there's been lots of industrial growth and technological creation and
0: Apple computers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you also, before we get deeper into where where this dream of your life has taken you, where you find yourself right now in the three stories of our time. Mm -hmm. So we have one story, business as usual, which is the Industrial Growth Society and that we can basically carry on how we have been indefinitely growing. And the goal is to make more and get ahead. And if we're going to lift anybody up, it's to lift them up into more money and more material um, and continue the the economic growth. Mm. We have, we have some people living only in the business as usual story. And then we have the story that more and more people are waking up to and feeling heartbroken and terrified and despairing about, which is the great unraveling. The climate crisis, mass extinctions, social crises, refugees, the unraveling of the systems that have sustained our lives. And then the third story of the great turning, where as humanity, we're making a great turning toward a life-sustaining way of being here on this planet. And all three stories are real. All three stories are happening. People are partaking in all of them or one or two. And I'm curious to hear where you find yourself in all of that and how you relate to those three Mm -hmm. stories.
0: Yeah. So I think first, before I say personally, I like, I've been thinking about these three things in a way as, since I'm involved in rites of passage work and so on, I think a lot about those three things as a way as sort of um, parts of initiation, or even perhaps the hero's journey. So to me, what I mean by that is business as usual is sort of like refusing the call, um, or, you know, not wanting to cross the threshold into great change. It's sort of this denial. And, you know, my awakening, I think from business as usual came when I lived in Montana and was a surveyor and a mapper. It was a great, great job. I, my explorer's myth was played out full, and you know, I was roaming all over western Montana with the boundary surveying outfit because I loved the land and I was mapping it because I thought I would get closer to it.
1: Mm-hmm. And in
0: many, in many ways, I did. I saw so much amazing territory, but I realized to in order to for this career to exist. I was also selling out the land and subdividing it, so to speak, and marking it and mapping it uh, so it could be used within that system of um, uh, the modern capitalism, colonization to be broken apart and so on. And it took me a very long time to be able to part with the, with my dream of wanting to be a mapper and a surveyor. And it was a really difficult decision In one in a job I held on too long. In fact, it made me ill, I think, from the grief I was holding inside that I I wasn't expressing. And so, but, you know, I did eventually quit for the reason that um, the thing I so loved was actually opposite of what I was intending. And so for me, business as usual, sometimes I think that's behind a lot of what goes on for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's subconscious. It's barely at the surface there. So half of you wants to resist it, resist it and half of you knows better. Uh, that's my experience, at least. Uh, of course, within all that time, I was brutally surrounded by the great unraveling uh, Montana within its third, fourth, uh, clear cut stages of tree growth all around, you know, um, over the last 100 years with its remnants of mining and tailings and, um, poisoned rivers and super fun cleanup sites like in Butte, Montana and so on. I mean, it was just everywhere around, at least on the environmental level. And, uh, at the same time, you know, It was harder to picture or imagine unraveling at a different level at that time in my life. But as of today, you know, we see it um, even in pandemic in the way the systems are changing, in the way the weather is changing here in the desert. You know, we're struggling with water and uh, all those basic systems. And it's utterly apparent that things as Joanna Macy said, or as humans say it, we, yeah, things, the systems are unraveling, but I also like to say that as it's unraveling, the earth is actually adapting. It does only what it knows to do, adapting uh, and changing to try and keep up, I suppose, with the speed of human change. So that's unraveling. And then uh, you know, as far as where I stand in the great turning, I feel like at this point in my life at age 52, I everything I do is intended to be in service of the great turning in one way or another. And uh, I can't save the world. I know that now, but I can do the best I can do with The sort of creative force that nature um, shows me as a role model. I use that as a role model. I think it's very easy to get caught up into um, sort of the victimized earth mentality and or to be um, really focusing in only that direction because the earth is so um, resilient. And so we need to you know, right now, personal practices to really breathe in and um, mirror that particular energy back into the world. So, yeah,
1: yeah. So I love that point about you know the unraveling and it, what what is unraveling? Because nature is not unraveling. That that would be that's not something we could say that the whole of nature is falling apart nature as role model who's adapting the maybe not even to personify like that, but like the whole system is adapting. It's not necessarily, um, helpful to us only to see the non-human world as a victim. And I know that you spend time with the land now in such a different way than you did when you were surveying and mapping, you're growing food and you're guiding people in the wilderness, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you're relating, just expand on that, how you're relating to the wilderness now and to, mm-hmm. to nature as role model and what it's like to, I think you said you wanted to be closer to the land when you were mapping, you know, how are you getting close now?
0: Yeah. So, so, so different when I was younger, I mean, a big part is up until my mid thirties, until I met my partner Constance, I, I was sort of a wandering fool. That was my you know what i love to do uh i didn't have a sense of community i didn't have a sense of being rooted in place although i loved many places and uh you know and that was i mean a lot of that time was getting to know the wild places but it wasn't until i arrived in this town that we live in leilani where um and meeting constance who had a sense of community that i actually uh decided that oh maybe there's something in this and you know having been what 15 years or so on a um, piece of property here uh, creating a modern homestead where we're growing our food i've built the house out of straw bale and local clays and um, i'm involved in the planning commission which you know in my mind is a way to protect the place within It's a very difficult job, by the way, because it's within the flawed legal system and government system that doesn't really um, consider place or land a sentient being. And I do. Mm -hmm. So so that's another piece. But, you know, so this idea of community and uh, working with other people has been an immense source of uh, strength and um, I think agency. And agency is a really important word because that actually gives um, credence to this idea that we call hope. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, hope without agency is nothing,
1: mm-hmm. right,
0: in my mind. So I think I don't know if I steered off your question or answered it, but maybe you could nudge me back in the right direction if I missed something
1: there. That's okay. We can go <laughs> right forward <laughs> from there. Um, I I want to make sure that we come back to the dreams and all of that. But now I'm getting curious about what your, how your goal is to protect the land and you're stepping into these, this structure that already exists. You know, this Mm. is one, one piece of the great turning, which we call holding actions. Right. And you and I were part of this together in protecting the water, right. From rotenone poisoning. It wasn't recreating society. It was a holding action, like do not harm this place. That's thriving. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, when you said that the legal structure doesn't recognize the land as sentient. I, I wanted to, I don't know if you have envisioned this, but what, what would it look like to you if the structures did honor the land and the thriving life here? That's not human.
0: Gosh, it's so hard to imagine, but, you know, I know there, there are some people out there in the legal world that are trying, you know, that have successfully given rights to, um, you know, rivers and different things. So when legal battles come up, uh, they can, um, you know, represent them, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, I I mean, I'm so... You know, okay, well, I need to give a little backstory. So so as far as let's go back to holding actions for a minute. So I mean my initial sort of uh, understanding that things were unraveling was Edward Abbey, you know, reading about the desert uh, in mm-hmm. my 20s. And I really responded to him back then because I loved the defiant, reactive, sort of um, uh, outlaw,, uh, you know, sort of mentality. And, but that was sort of in for me, an immature way to protect the land. Although I followed that out for, you know, a while and then, you know, I got to a place where I guess, you know, in, in many ways upon, I sort of woke up ecologically and that's a whole nother story. But when I got to this small town here, um, you know, with, we had to fight a legal battle, um, to save the fresh water that was being poisoned for the reintroduction of a native, they called it native Colorado cutthroat throat, trout. Uh, and, but the, what the means to the end was uh, not good. And mm-hmm. because they poisoned everything in the streams, as you well know. So it was a noble project, but the means to the end was absolutely unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And we brought the community together And we had to fight that project uh, within the uh, the legal framework of the Forest Service, which is, you know, the environmental impact statements and all that. And over and over again, I mean, I I spent countless, countless days, hours writing huge documents to go up against 600 page environmental impact statements, um, trying to seed it with poetics and a little bit of ethic in there just so it was at least interesting (laughs) and but that's also how nature talks right so there was this hidden agenda in there Mm -hmm. at the same time you know you know this was not my own my own job Constance was immensely involved in in fact you know sort of spearheaded much of the sort of even ceremony on the mountain um yeah people um, coming together to give gratitude to the water, praying for it, asking how to protect it, and so there's this whole invisible medium in there, and uh, we lost pretty much every legal fight in there. You know that, with regardless of all our comments on the environmental impact statements, everything it was all overturned and uh, overrun, and it was going to be a go ahead, and uh, we appealed and the supervisor at the time of the forest Dixie National Forest got interested in what we were saying and he came out to talk to a bunch of us and we all talked to him separately and so on and whatever we said reached him and he ended up overturning the forest service decision which is pretty much unprecedented Uh, and there could have been a greater strategy in that um, but you know months down the road he was uh, moved to oregon actually away from here and i don't know what that means but we ended up winning the battle and we still have to they still try as you well know here and we still come up and sort of say no it's not going to happen so something happened beyond the legal system i particularly don't believe we can win or keep these holding patterns uh, within the very narrow-minded framework of the legal system. I wanna play by nature's law. And I think it's something, if you're within the great turning that we all have to um, get in alignment with, which is the force of nature and to realize that it has capacity and power and wants to speak through us as well. So how does that work?
1: Yeah. Wow. I'm reabsorbing that story that, (laughs) um, that you, that in the end, it was reaching the heart of one man who overturned the decision that actually I'm not permanently closed, but closed the issue at that time. And, and how important, whatever that heart to heart connection was, which is an unseen thing and all the other unseen things that were taking place. Mm. through ceremony and bringing people together. And I mean, in a way that feels more hopeful to use that word again, more, more sense of possibility there for me than thinking about the legal structures and how, how those, that type of uh, tight control over things could be adjusted to account for what life needs (laughs) to, to continue to thrive. It's
0: exactly. Yeah. And, and and I think that's such an important point for people out there. It's not to say that we need to use the legal system, but it's about balancing ourselves and acting as an ambassador towards nature. How would nature do it? You know, Again, it's what I spoke to a little earlier. It's how do we keep tapping into the creative force of nature because we know that has more wisdom and is more wise and more in tune than the legal system is to itself, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so so it's this this ever deepening, widening sort of sourcing of strength to attend to matters that are bigger than just human uh, intelligence, even in population. It's this otherworldly intelligence. We have to use that as our guide, I think.
1: Can you think of any examples of how nature handles something like just to bring us down to it, to a grounded image or of, of what you mean, like, what do you see nature doing that we can, um, learn from?
0: Well, so many things, I think, because it's sort of where I go now, you know, I believe through dream work that nature is not, I believe the language of dreams and the language of wild nature are very similar. And that dreams come from, I suppose, the earth in it's of itself. And a lot of times what I've seen over the years is that dreams and you've had some too dreams come through with about water dreams come through about mountain lines, dreams come through to start um, sort of picking apart and helping us see our own shadows and our own ignorance. And dreams seem to keep expanding uh, our consciousness and moving us into a greater capacity of being. And when I see that happening in people, what I see is people waking up. And what waking up means is they move beyond the self-centered life or self-absorbed life and they start to realize how um, much of living is being in service to something greater than them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so, I you know that's one grounded example, I suppose.
1: Yeah. So let let's talk more about dreams and what you're doing with dreams in the context of men's work. I I'll just name that you know a lot of the conversation, the way it's shifting collectively, you know, and, and talking about the patriarchy and the rejection of the feminine on a culture-wide scale, the culture that you and I live in is, is part of how we've done this to ourselves, done this to the, to the ecosystem and the, the, uh, all the aspects of life that would sustain us. And so I know you're working on the personal level with individual men, but also on a greater level. So I'd like to hear about that kind of maybe even if you want to say what men's work is, as well as why dreams Mm. matter to you in that.
0: Yeah. So let me give a brief sort of how this, first of all, I said a little bit, this is how I hold dream work. I believe dream work is on a personal level, an inner navigation tool that is trustworthy and full of wisdom and completely unique to each of us because dreams in a way are crafted for each of us each night. They come from this ancient, think, talk about ancient eyes, this ever ancient and sort of place of wisdom deep within uh, Mm -hmm. and without really. Uh, And and then beyond the personal level dream work also is at the same time, You know, uh, it's so hard to describe, but it's the consciousness, I think, of beings other than human are reaching through dreams. For example, animal dreams, uh, you know, a typical psychological way of looking at an animal dream is that, uh, you know, the animal must mean something about me. Uh, But it's also known that animals come to us seeking their own help and their own wanting to be understood through dreams as well, so sometimes animal dreams are about the animal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so there's so many ways, you know. So based the the you know t- in a nutshell, dreams are personal, uh, for the community and ecological, and perhaps universal all at once. Uh, dreams have this ability uh, of all that wisdom nested within the seed of the dream, and so that's dreams. Now men's work for me over the years has been uh it's given me the strength of moving through my own sense of uh, shame loneliness lone wolfness uh, all these different ways and allowed me to be in alliance without ego and competitive behavior with other men and to uh, learn and have the ability to hold each other accountable to whatever each of our truths are and then to act on them together. And this sense of camaraderie, brotherhood feeling is uh, one of the most important aspects I've felt in uh, being uh, together in men's work. And so I've put dream work and men's work together in what I call Wolfpack Dreaming where we do group dream work with a a team of men and we dive into the deep emotions of dreams, the the deep accuracy of dream to heal us and the um, mythic storylines that dreams give us in order to walk into the world in practical ways that um, change what we can change for the better.
1: And what do you, how do you feel about this idea that part of men's work is about, well, you mentioned, you know, not being driven by competition or having a lot of ego there and really being able to have camaraderie and talk about deep emotions, you know, in a circle of men. So that feels to me like a restoration of some of the the feminine qualities within these men who are in the circle. And when I start using these words, I start mm. wanting to move more towards yin and yang because we get so mixed up sometimes with the right. feminine and masculine, right. but, but the, the openness to emotion, the openness to the unseen, to the subtle, to collaboration, to, to caregiving, to being gentle with each other at the same time as being able to, you know, like you said, hold each other accountable and and be a source of strength for one another. What do you think about how shifting our cultural expectations of men, you know, to open up to all of that is a piece of what needs to happen for, for humanity?
0: I think it's a huge piece. And, but I'd also, you know, want to direct it like the way that I name it is uh, initiated masculine mm-hmm. and and the same goes uh, for the initiated feminine as well. Um, but in my line of work, the initiated masculine ha- has that, you know, that balance of yin and yang uh, mm-hmm. in it. It understands itself that way. And so it's this, it's this, again, it's this beautiful balance where um, you have the fire and driven purpose of the sort of the yang quality. And then you have this um, more uh, water mythos, um, seeing through the dark, uh, loving sort of ability in the background with the, the, the yin. And so part, dream work to me is this realm that's beyond the logical. So I think it's a very valuable place for men to go and a place that uh alone is a lot harder to do in a place that is not really available to them so easily in this world Mm -hmm. and the poetic depth and sort of wit of the dream and the beauty of it all that brings this incredible balance to the warrior that men many men identify with and so i say dream work is for warrior poets and that's how i you know try and um you know, get the men fired up to, hey, come do dream work. Because, you know, you know, 95% of the people I've worked with in the past that reach out for dream work are women. And Mm -hmm. for some reason, there's this, it, it, you know, it's something that's, uh, seems avoided by men or not of interest, but dreams are, are evolutionary evolutionary uh, inheritance they're our birthright right they they come to all of us each night they seem like such a critical aspect of our being to me as you know dreams are I mean like the respiratory process of breathing or a heart beating it, it just happens without mm-hmm. us thinking it's there and it's been there forever as far as we can tell studying cultures all the way back down the line
1: yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me like you're speaking about wholeness in in multiple ways here. The initiated masculine having the wholeness of yin and yang, and the wholeness of including our dreaming in our lives. And
0: I, yes, and I, I do want to say, you know, the in creating these safe places, safe places for men to explore this terrain. Because it's, you know, and we're exploring, I'm not saying we've, we've mastered it or are good at it. it. It's, it's reclaiming is a, is an ongoing process and takes a lot of humility and honesty and truth. And um, we need that in all directions of our life, but men particularly need that among themselves in order to heal some of the wounds there everything for me has to do with the wake-up call that dreams bring. Um, And I don't know, men are, in many ways, men are still driven by the societal framework of what success looks like, what providing for a family looks like, what, uh, you know, uh, all these ways that we're supposed to be. And I think what gets lost in the mix is uh, taking the slow, sweet time to find what their own path truly is. Mm -hmm. And and that's probably true for everybody. Yeah. Uh, But dreams seem to very much point the way towards a very unique way of being. And that's why I say in Wolfpack Dreaming and Raven Dream Tracking simply is that um, I say every man needs a mythic storyline. These dreams start teasing out these threads. And I've noticed that when a man sees the, the, um, the thread running through their life on a deeper level with all the drama, the deep emotion, the outrageousness that dreams give, and so on, uh, something lights up inside of them Mm -hmm. and uh, something that they can call their own, something that they can trust. And I don't think there's so many places to turn to for information in the world now that most men don't trust anything, um, much less themselves, right? And so
1: Hmm.
0: when I think strength comes from trusting yourself and, and your own tumultuous process within that of waking up and wandering through shadow and, um, you know, battling a bit with ego and and coming up with your own integrity and what's true and raising your standard and saying, this is the way I want to live. This is my code. This is what I want to claim. This is the direction I want to move and being completely honored in that rather than torn down or dismissed or um, ignored.
1: yeah it sounds like a way out of business as usual like you were saying about initiation mm. right like yeah. business as usual in the personal life path you know and also maybe thinking thinking bigger about how that personal life path is a part of greater shifts but business as usual would be those, you know, ideas of success or not feeling like you can be vulnerable or, um, have that camaraderie. And this is a, feels like a chance to, to be met in a group of people who are not going to keep going with business as usual for themselves and and what's expected of them necessarily, but, but claim that.
0: Wow. Very much so. I think you're it. Yeah, that's the hitting the nail on the head there. With, yeah, it definitely breaks out of the business as usual. And I think it starts to also, you know, reveal the unraveling, and it gives credence towards actions towards the great turning actual yeah. mana, you know, physically manifested actions in your life. I mean, that to me is code and integrity. Uh, Yeah, built in sense of purpose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and one problem we've faced for a long time with the great unraveling, although I think, I think this is going to change a lot in the next few years is how many people don't believe or want to acknowledge that it's happening. And that's because it's, scary and sad you know and and without this relationship with our own inner landscape and a community to experience that fear and sadness with it's pretty hard to want to look that in the face
0: for sure and in fact um yeah have uh, for those who haven't and I don't know if you have the book Ishmael which came out maybe 80s or 90s um and uh, I won't I'll just have you look up the book. Uh, but it's but it it's a book that r- sort of renegotiates everyone's um, you know relationship with looking at nature and what it is to us in a very deep way. And I know a few men that have been reading that within some of the men's circles I'm at, and uh, they're more um, you know from the cities, more um, urban uh, based, and. Uh, it's, it's broken them open, hmm. but since a few of them have been reading it, they've actually together planned like a five-year plan, actions, how do I want my life to be different, addressing, you know, if I was, you know, actually giving something to the earth as opposed to taking it away, what would my life look like in five years? And they've put those plans together, and then they're going to hold each other accountable to those wow. plans. So that's some really tangible action. And that's what happens, at least that I see when the men start actually working together on a shared common purpose vision.
1: Mm -hmm. I will definitely link to that book. I I read that when I was 19, I think. And I, I remember, you know, going into all of Daniel Quinn's work, like it was a it was a life shifting perspective, shifting book, for sure. I was already Mm -hmm. feeling like things were not going along in a good way. You know, I wasn't bought into business as usual, but that was a next level reconsideration. I haven't read it since now. I I wonder, and maybe I'll go back to it.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's something else. I mean, that that this hones into, I think that's important to talk about it. And, you know, I told you how I grew up, you know, but you know, many people today who grow up in urban areas, business as usual, such a dominant framework that they they don't even have access to something wild. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, it was that, you know, and that's the exact thing that, that we're paving over, right? Literally, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right. And so, and it's hard because the populations are so great with people, but But, you know, so one thing I say about, you know, if you can't get out to someplace wild, at least start wandering the wilderness of your dreams, like start a relationship there, because that is a sense of wildness that can come through and wake you up as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're reminding me of I was going to a, a full moon ceremony that Constance was hosting, and I was driving down from the city, you know, on the freeway. and looking around at all the, you know, the like little lonely solo trees that are sometimes planted along the freeway or just small glimpses of green that you can get and trying to open my heart to them, like just because they're alone and not in the forest and, you know, being passed by thousands of cars, that's still life over there. That's still life doing its thing. And there's some wildness to it just yeah. by by being out there, you know, and, and so that I think about that too, when I am in more urban environments is just taking a moment to notice the, the life that is coming up through the sidewalk cracks, or that is contained in the little hole that was built and, you know, that the sidewalk was poured around so that one tree could grow, you know, it's still...
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, that's beautiful. And I. I mean, and you see, like the bird populations in cities and how the animals and the plants adapt. It's utterly amazing. Yeah. Uh, it also reminds me of another book that, that that's a great, interesting read called "The World Without Us." I can't remember the author's name right at right now, but he basically does a scientific study. And you know, if if all the human populations say disappeared out of New York City, how fast would nature reclaim the city? And uh, it's pretty amazing because, you know, the underground subway systems, the pumps would stop working and all the water would flood in. And it's a very short amount of time that nature can reclaim itself. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm saying not at the expense of getting rid of all human populations. But if we just gave nature just a little more room to breathe, it's amazing how fast that. Uh, I think nature could show us the way and reclaim so many of these places um, in a wilder fashion. And so what's this perfect, you know, okay, here's a dream for you, actually, that I had uh, a couple of years, a couple, I want to say decades, actually, (laughs) ago, (laughs) but it was a really powerful dream. And so in this dream, and this is an example, okay, of, of, of the direction I'm going towards the great turning. And I think I have been most of my life. And it probably pushed me there. But in this dream, I'm walking up uh, just a wild creek, um, you know, meandering, going around uh, beautiful and so on. And, and, you know, like, like nature is a little messy, because some floods have been down, and I, I say messy tongue in cheek, you know, sort mm-hmm. of in quote quotes, you know, but wild nature, right. And, and the stream was lasted forever, right. And as I'm gradually walking up the stream at first, in the first part of the stream, I see what seems like not quite natural, but natural, like someone's been helping carve and smooth the bank here. I go around another turn in the, or meander in the Creek, and there's like a few stone steps and just almost seamlessly and beautifully progressed throughout this very, very long dream. um, Whatever is being built in the nat- natural course of the river become conjoined, so you can't tell the human interaction with the creating of the river and the river itself from being wild. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but oh, I love was, that it, it was <laughs> even more beautiful because of the human collaboration with nature itself.
1: Yeah, and
0: eventually I got to the end of this stunning, stunning um created uh, creek. And I walked underground in the end of it and came up into a house. And there was a couple that lived there and they were the co-creators. And I thanked them in the dream. And then I walked up the stairs out into the daylight. Mm. And that was the end of the dream.
1: Wow. Do you still feel that dream when you retell it?
0: Oh, completely. I mean, in my heart, I mean, I think that's, it's so hard to describe that nuanced feeling I'm trying to describe of, um, but sometimes you see it, I hate to say it, but in fantasy movies where, Uh you know, where it's, it's almost like sacred geometry, sacred geography where the land and the place have been built um, completely in regard to each other. Yeah. And there's something utterly, to me, that's the, The beautiful relationship between the human and the other, the natural world. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that in all aspects within our own hearts and minds and bodies and the way in which we inhabit the places we live in?
1: Yeah. That's so beautiful. And, and rather than for me asking the question, you know, what does the world look like without us and how does how long does it take nature to come c- reclaim you know is more like how do we reintegrate ourselves with the rest of nature of which mm-hmm. we to to which we belong you know and how do we how do we reclaim that you know and and let ourselves be reclaimed and that that is so beautiful i know it doesn't look like your yeah. image cuz i i wasn't in there with you but i have a beautiful image of what you just described yeah. and and yeah
0: so, and, 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 you know, it begs the question, where did that dream come from and why, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's to me what dreams offer us. And uh, and it certainly looks like to me that I've followed that creek mm-hmm. most of my life, uh, maybe not as consciously as I had intended, but it's been happening, mm-hmm. so.
1: Yeah, that feels like the kind of thing too, where you can know the feeling of it and then you can check, am I attuned to that feeling is what I'm doing Mm. in, in resonance with this or am I off?
0: Exactly. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that, I mean, that, that is the way that you tune into a dream is that feeling level, right? That that energetic level of it, that originally it showed up as, am I walking with that beauty that I feel in the dream in my day, day world presently, you know? Yeah. If I'm not, how do I keep steering back there, right?
1: All right. Well, that seems like a beautiful image and question to hold as to, to wrap up our conversation for now. But I want to ask you, before we close, if if you could invite the people listening to do one thing after they hear this, what would it be?
0: I would say... After you listen to this podcast step outside and this comes from a friend of mine, this it's an exercise, I suppose, um, to go walk somewhere uh, with some nature in it and walk as if the 4.5 billion year old earth is aware of you. Mm hmm. You don't have to think about it. Just walk as if it's aware of you and see what comes.
1: All right. I'm going to do that after we hang up.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for all of this. Thanks for everything you brought into the conversation and all the many, many ways we could have gone here. I feel like lots of little seeds and trails are appearing so thanks for sharing where you're at and how you are playing your role in the great turning and in your own life and with the people who get to work with you you and Constance are so so dear to me and I know I'll probably never get her on the podcast but I know that her her wisdom and her way in the world inform you and I both so yeah to her too well
0: I think that you might be able to get her on the podcast for this one for sure. She's oh, a su- okay, subject that's dear to her heart. So,
1: okay, good, definitely.
0: <laughs> and uh, and thank you for yeah for leading me down here and and yeah, there's so many rabbit trails. And I just want to really honor what you're doing, Leilani, because it's, it is actually a really huge topic, and it and it's hard to even know what direction to work in. But I think the most important thing is that each of us has a unique way of addressing it. And that is, you know, the truth that each of us must follow. And if we're all doing that, um, that piece, it's like all these trickling springs that go into the larger river that really can change things
1: Absolutely. Down, down
0: course. So
1: yeah. 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 Just imagine if everyone or even most people were following their path and, the, you know, whatever it might be, that would be yeah. enough. That would be everything. Yep. Yep. So, thank you for for sharing yours and following yours and what you love and what breaks your heart and what inspires you. I'm grateful to be in this journey with you.
0: Thank you, Elani.
1: Thank you for listening. I'm curious what you thought about this conversation, about what comes up next time you're out walking, as though the Earth, billions of years old and all the present life around you are aware of you. I'm curious about your book recommendations for the Turning Season shop on Bookshop, so come leave a comment about any of that and find links to learn more about Matt and his dreamwork offerings at turningseason.com slash episode three. I'll be back with episode four on the new moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part in The Great Turning.